me get you even closer, Mike. Will you do even that Even closer. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Raleigh, North Carolina, the most dynamic state capital in the country. At least for, for you. Uh, <laughs> name me a more relevant and interesting and explosive state capital than Raleigh right now. Name me one. I did not have sexual relations with that one. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Hey there, and welcome to Communications Breakdown, brought to you by Campsite Strategies. Each week, of course, we are talking to and learning from some of the very best in the communications business, trying to break down what's working and what's not anymore. I'm John Camp, recovering TV reporter with 20 years in local news. This week, we're talking politics. And to make the point, I should say up front, we're not talking policy. These are different things, of course. Today, we're going to be looking at the ways that people in the business of politics or people pushing policy suggestions are using communications skills to do their job. My guest host on today's show, my co-pilot, Jeff Tabiri. Jeff's a good friend and longtime political reporter in North Carolina. Jeff's one of the people that UNC Radio has graced us with down at the General Assembly, and thank God you are there, Jeff. Great to have you with us. Great to be here, John. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start by giving folks a sense for what you do, and then we'll dive in. Uh, I am a... I'm based at the state legislature, which is, we were talking just before we got started here, one of the more uh, interesting state capitals uh, in the country, by my money. I obviously have a bias on this. But uh, e- each week I-, I do a couple of different things. I do a, a political podcast. Uh, I now actually, I guess, technically do two politic po- politics podcasts. One of the things we try to do each week is have a long-form conversation with a newsmaker, whether that's a legislator or a staffer or a strategist. Sometimes it's a reporter or a political scientist. Uh, and then we also uh, have a-, a weekly review of the news. We typically have uh, Becky Gray from the John Locke Foundation and Rob Schofield from uh, NC Policy Watch. So a conservative voice and a progressive voice that get together uh, each week uh, in our, our basement dungeon at the legislature. Uh, so those are, those are kind of the, the two weekly staples that I produce. Um, but at the same time, I, I do spot news. I do minute-long stories about whatever is happening. And we're in the, the midst of this court-ordered redistricting. Uh, they're obviously uh, <laughs> in earnest, so to speak. The, uh, the, the 2020 election has started. Uh, and then I'll do some longer feature stories as well. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, a smorgasbord. And there, there's there's no lull right now in North Carolina politics. Yeah, your podcast is a great place to start. It's not so much news as it is a collection of backstories that accompany the news uh, as offered by the newsmakers you interview, right? So it's the perspective mm-hmm. uh, that sort of allows us to be the fly on the wall in some way. Talk about why it's so important to get that backstory because there's a lot of stuff that goes on on Jones Street that people don't see and hear. There is, and the you know, as anybody who follows the news knows, that the cycle's so freaking quick these days, right? I mean, it turns over. It's not every day. It feels like every every few hours. It's almost with the tides, right? I mean, something big happens or something moderate happens, and then you've moved on to the next thing. So uh, it feels, from my perspective, as though there often is not enough of a moment, a debrief, a chance to catch up a little bit. And I think one of the things the podcast can do well at times or do well when it when it's functioning properly uh, is to pull the curtain back a little bit, a little bit of process, a little bit of the backstory, the motivations. And it's not just a 60 or 90 second radio story, but you've got, uh, you got 20 or 30 minutes to attempt to get into whomever the, the, the person is about the subject matter at hand. So I think it allows for a on occasion, a, a little bit deeper of a, a look. 
You've been reporting at NPR stations now for about 15 years. You started at Syracuse. Uh, SI Newhouse is where you got your degree in broadcast journalism. Mm -hmm. We share that. I have that in we common do. with yep. you, except I was a grad student there a few years before you. That just, just date, yep. dates me a little bit. Uh, and since then, you've been on Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Weekend Edition, Marketplace, Here and Now. You've been on the BBC. What of this uh, storied career sticks out to you? <laughs> storied is strong. I've had the opportunity to do a lot of different stuff, from covering like the John Edwards trial to the aftermath of hurricanes and tornadoes, uh, to covering college athletics to an extent. Um, I'm, I feel fortunate that I've been able to do a lot of different kinds of reporting. Um, and being in that building the last four and a half, five years at the legislature, it, to an extent, I mean, it's it's... It, it's not ground zero, but it's, it's one of the examples of ground zero for hyperpartisanship in our country. And it, it, it's been a very interesting look at, uh, you know, there's the civics you're taught in high school or college. Um, and certainly some of that's on display. But then there's also the, the gamesmanship and the politicking uh, that plays out uh in in legislatures across the country, I imagine I haven't worked. I have some colleagues at the legislature who have worked at other capitals. I have not, but uh, I imagine in some ways North Carolina very unique, and in other ways, uh, this is this is standard for 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 how government is run. I don't think people know what it takes to be a political reporter. Reporters are instinctively truth seekers, right? Politics requires the obfuscation of truth much of the time, which means mm -hmm. that reporters are often left reading tea leaves and reporting less than full stories when we're talking about political stories. But that's what we're left with, right? Talk about how you parse all this out and decide how, do you, how, how to find truth in your reporting when your subject matter almost by definition tries to hide it. It can be incredibly frustrating and challenging at times because you what, what you're hearing so often, such a large portion of it is garbage. The, the, the level of spin that you get in politics is sophisticated, it is experienced, and I think that sometimes, regularly, I'm hearing from people, I mean, they're, they're telling me something that isn't, it's not correct, but they, they actually believe it. They actually think what they're, what they're selling you is, is the best bill of goods uh, available on the marketplace. So, Working through that, working through people that are so convincing um, and so experienced at trying to manipulate the, the narrative and, and get you to run with their story, it's very challenging. It, it is, it's, a, it's a little bit fun at times to, to think, all right, now wait a second, that doesn't totally make sense. Why? How do I know that doesn't make sense? Why do I know that doesn't make sense? So that's part of it is, is, is really trying to be diligent and sifting through what you're hearing and what you can discern to be accurate and be true or close to true. Uh, and the other portion of it, of course, is trying to find, we, we hear fair and balanced, okay, hearing equal voices, hearing voices from both sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle, but also trying to get a diversity of voices. And when I say diversity, I mean, that cuts across a lot of different things, right? I mean, sure, that can be Republican and Democrat, but that's also white man. And listen, I'm a white guy. That building is dominated by white men for the most part. Lawmakers are, are predominantly white men in the country, but also in the state. So sometimes, depending on the issue, depending on whatever it is we're, we're reporting out, trying to hear from people who are not white men, trying to hear from people who are not in the building. How important do you think it is to get out and into the community then? It's imperative. It's imperative on both the political and the policy side of it because you get spun so much. You, you live in the bubble. I mean, there's oh, there's the, what, what, I'm new to, relatively new to Raleigh. What do they call it? The ITB, inside the Beltline bubble. Well, then on Jones Street, you're truly, I mean, it's an even, uh, it's an even tighter bubble. There's a, there's a longtime political reporter at the legislature. His name's Gary Robertson. He's the Associated Press State House reporter. Gary's great. He's been there 15, 20 years. And uh, he 
notes that there was uh, there generally was a downtime between summer of an odd year and spring of an even year. Okay, so historically, last 40 years or so, legislature's long session ends in the summer of an odd year, so like July or August of 2019, and then uh, they all go home until March or April or May of the next year. So you'd have like six to eight months where there was a bit of a lull in what was happening, uh, and you could get to do some other stories. You could go out into the field and, and, and follow up on policy pieces. You could understand you know, what different constituencies are looking at as you head into an election year. But that's changed. There's none of that right now. Gary Robertson talks about there being that lull. We do not have that lull, and I don't know when it will return. That's a great segue into our first interview. Uh, Jane Pinsky is the executive director of the North Carolina Coalition for Lobbying and Ethics Reform. She's been advocating for good government for decades in North Carolina. The segment I want to play today starts with Jane reflecting on how times have changed for lobbyists and people trying to peddle influence down at the legislature, because that's what she does. Make no mistake, like everyone else down there, Jane, too, is selling something. It's just that Jane is selling good government. Here's Jane Pinsky talking about how to sell to a political audience. It used to be, and, and this may be part of the communications breakdown, when I started here, there were 20-plus Capitol reporters. Um, now there are, what, five? Five or six. Yeah. And so what does that mean for you as someone who wants to get out messaging either to politicians or about politicians? It means we have to take an extra step. We can't just assume that there's a reporter here who's going to send the message for us. What we'll have to do is get our press release out, get the video out in a bunch of ways, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, emails, and hope that other people see it. So for you, it means more work, more elbow grease. A lot more work, but you really have to target your use of media. And that's in terms of not sending something to reporters every day during the week and maybe not even every week during the month. You send them something when they really need to pay attention. And Value reporters' time. Right. Their time and their independence. I mean, you can't tell a reporter what to say. You can't feed them the story. You have to get them there. You also have to spend time cultivating them so that they believe what you're saying. You know, if I were a reporter, I'd figure that half of what I've heard is less than true. What's your sense for the reporting, the quality of reporters down here? Because there are some who, in my opinion, just know exactly what they're doing. And sometimes you'll find people stumbling in from either out-of-market or non-political backgrounds who have no idea what they're doing. And, and you don't know who you're going to get necessarily. And, and the part of it is people like Colin Campbell or Laura Leslie... Uh, Jeff Tabiri. Jeff Tabiri, know the questions to ask. Um, so when you have a reporter who doesn't know it, you have to make sure that you give them answers for questions that they didn't know they needed to ask. You have to know that for an NPR or a radio reporter, they want sound. You can't say, oh, look at this map. You can say this map rips counties apart and suggest to them that they rip a piece of paper as their sound background. Have you ever done that? Have you ever placed that particular thought in a mind and watched it play out on TV? Not recently. But you've done it in I've your career. I've done it, yeah. I, I liked what Jane said there because, quite honestly, while you can't make 
the, the horse drink, the proverbial horse drink, you can absolutely lead those reporter horses to water, right? You can show them where the story is. You can bring, you can put it in front of them. And odds are, if you do a good enough job of teeing it up, I think they will take it. But you tell me, you're, you're in this field still. I think well, redistricting is such a fascinating topic, right? Because at its core, at least as it's presented, and I think as a lot of people look at it, depending on whether they're where they're looking at it from, it's about fairness. I mean, I think you, you can catch the ear of a journalist. You say, oh, this is fair. This is, this, is, this is how things should be. This is going to improve things. Well, okay, that's interesting. Tell me more. But as, as Jane was talking about there, I think one of the challenges also is understanding what reporters want or need. I mean, we have a, a great service. Um, it's called the NC Insider, and they do insidery stuff for the most part. And that's going to differ than Laura Leslie, who's doing half a dozen TV hits a day sometimes, um, as opposed to a public radio reporter that might spend, you know, a week on something and have it be a little bit more reflective. So the, the understanding what reporters are generally working on and those deadlines is also instructive to the relationship. You know, we also had the good fortune to talk with Representative Greg Meyer uh, for this show today. Greg Meyer is one of the best social media minds, I think, down on Jones Street. He gets, at a fundamental level, how people are communicating. And I wanted to get his thoughts on how all that translates in the political landscape. Here's Representative Greg Meyer. We'll talk about it on the other side. I think this is an era where the two biggest pieces of political currency are moral clarity and emotional authenticity. And that works across the political spectrum. And if you're able to figure out how to communicate with those two things, you can do it for free and you can get a lot of people to pay attention to you. So if you're a, a politician and you're trying to communicate with voters, if you don't come across with emotional authenticity, you're not gonna capture them in this era, particularly because of how much video and digital communication captures emotional authenticity. And then if you do use that, you better be clear on your, on your morals or else people won't know whether to vote for you or not. And if you want to provide a contrast to the other side, then you have to make your moral clarity a clear contrast to theirs. Every time that I'm going to speak to a group or I'm going to get on camera to speak uh, on Facebook Live or whatever it is or film a video, I go through a little internal process of like, what am I going to say and who is it that this impacts that I love? And I have to get in that space, and then I can bring that authenticity with me. I do pretty well on video, and so I tend to go video forward. I try to do videos when there's a hot moment um, or when I've got something compelling that I want to say because I think that it gives me the chance to combine the emotion and the, and the intellect in a, in a way that you can't do when it's just written word and a written post. Uh, but, you, but you can't do video all the time either. And, um, it's more than just figuring out kind of what, which of the social strategies you're going to use. It's also about uh, what is, what are the social media networks, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, what are they boosting at the current time? And then what do you have to pay for? And, and what's your judgment between those two things? Do you have somebody looking at all that for you? Or is that you doing that work? It's a combination of the two, but it's at the point now where that is sufficiently complex that I can't do it by myself. I've always been lucky to have people around me who've been able to help me to figure that out. But like when Facebook Live first launched and I launched a lot of Facebook Live, that was simply understanding that like Facebook is boosting these videos, no matter what you do, use it as much as possible as free coverage. Now they've ramped that back, and if you want your Facebook Live to get coverage, you pretty much got to pay for it. And so we've transitioned to doing more 
pre-shot videos that we can caption because we know the captions boost your views and if we're going to have to pay for video anyhow we'd rather have the captioning than the interactive of the live thing. You don't find too many representatives or senators at the state level anyway, probably at the national level as well, that understand Facebook algorithms and how to catch people on social media, I don't think. And he's also aware that it's changing, right? Like the Facebook Live um, component that he talked about there, it was essentially a free service a couple of years ago. It was an and easy way to get eyeballs. Hammering that in 17, early 18 as we headed into the midterms, but now mm -hmm. it's something that you've got to determine if it's a, a good allocation of resources for you. I, I think that it's just a reminder of kind of the scattershot nature of going and finding voters now. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, what'd you have? You had TV, three TV networks, little radio, and newspapers were a big one. And now there are all these different ways in which you can try to go motivate voters. It's a tough landscape to try to understand what could be impactful and when to go do it. All right, you can find those full interviews with Jane Pinsky and Representative Greg Meyer on our website. We'll link you to that in our pod notes. We're going to take a very short break now, and when we come back, be joined by two more longtime political operatives to get a look at a few other corners of political comms. We'll wade around in the weeds of what's working and what's not. We'll play some games like we do every week to get to the heart of it all and wrap up this communications breakdown with anything else. We'll be right back. Communications Breakdown is brought to you by Campsite Strategies. Campsite helps companies, nonprofits, and political types tap into their core strengths to pull out their very best stories with maximum impact. Leveraging deep relationships in the media, Campsite's Emmy-winning team of problem solvers and storytellers treats every client like it's their only client. Whether you want your story captured, told, and sold, or you're in the fight of your life feeling like David and need help figuring out which stones to throw, Campsite can help. Campsite will get the right information to the right people at the right time, and that can make all the difference in the world. If you've got a problem, odds are a good communication strategy will be key to solving it. Campsite will get you there. All right, we are back with Communications Breakdown. I'm John Camp, joined this week by WUNC political reporter Jeff Tabiri, and now three other comms pros when it comes to political maneuvering, Matt Duffy, Catherine Vandergrift, and Mitch Kokai. Matt's my business partner at Campsite Strategies. Before that, he ran his own research communication shop on the West Coast, doing deep opposition and defensive research for campaigns. Catherine, on the other hand, is steeped in operational savvy, running field operations for campaigns, everything from door knocks to vote counts. We're going to get into the weeds on that later. And then Mitch, welcome back. Mitch runs the communication shop here at the John Locke Foundation where we're taping this podcast. We sure appreciate it. We're very happy to have all three of you with us. I want to start by having Catherine and Matt break down their areas of expertise for us. Catherine, for folks who don't know, give us a glimpse into what the field operations battlefield looks like. 
Field operations is essentially the art of connecting the campaign to its voters, making sure that all the voters know about the candidate, know about the candidate's message and are persuaded by it, and that they know when the election's coming up so that they can turn out en masse and get you to that 50% plus one or substantive plurality or whatever the win condition is for the race. So when you and I got to know each other, it was on Allison Dahl's campaign, District 11 in Wake County. Uh, she was a virtual unknown, not virtual, she was unknown when yes. we met. She wound up winning by 43 points, I think, yeah. uh, or something close to that. Yeah. But you knew that way in advance. How did you do that? How did you get that particular crystal ball and be able to see into the future like that? I mean, the best way to know is still polling. I know that that's a little bit, people don't want to trust that nowadays, but it is still polling. We didn't have any of that because we were a small, rapid race without the resources to do anything like that. But what we had was the response from the doors. We had this high ratio of people saying that they were all the way behind Allison compared to people who are just saying, oh yeah, sure, I'll vote for her. You get a lot of people at the doors who say that. So that's something that I used as a proxy. Uh, is that we just saw so many people among a universe that was basically every Democratic primary voter that said they were lined up entirely behind her. I believe the ratio towards the last few weeks was something like nine to one strong support versus mere support. How did you do your job communicating to a field of voters that there was this new name out there that they really ought to vote for? Uh, every method that we could, but the basic one is always doors. We knocked a lot of doors over the six-week period of the campaign. I believe it came to over 4,000 individual doors, uh, and about a quarter of those were contacts. So we had conversations with about 1,000 voters that uh, we felt could go either way. We also got text messages out to every potential voter through, uh, through a medium through Hustle. So any communications method you can use to get your message in front of voters. Matt, you are steeped in research, but the kind of research that gave us the Michael Steele dossier, that kind of research. And I, I always want to be a little careful about comparing you to that. But, but frankly, for what you did and what you are so good at, that's probably the best way that people in today's vernacular anyway can identify with it, right? I mean, most people don't know oppo research or defensive research, but the Michael Steele document is most definitively that. Opposition research is just as important as polling, as mail, as strategy, um, and it has been there for a long time. And basically what it is is a, a rundown of what the, the person that you're running against or running the team that you're on um, and finding out who they voted for, where they got their money, um, what their history is, any controversy that they have. It's all public record. And it's all used by the campaign to go along with the polling and you decide what pops in the polls and then you go from there and decide your media strategy. So it's really, it sounds nefarious, but it's really not. It's something that's very useful and very well used in both sides of the aisle for any campaign. Well, I've got to think also, though, that getting the information and using the information are very different things. Um have you been in a circumstance where you were able to learn something that could have been damaging, but the campaign you were working for decided not to use it for any kind of ethical or other reason? Absolutely not. No, you use it if you yeah, got absolutely. it. Absolutely. You use what you got. If you have a silver silver bullet, which is not usually the case with uh, research, it's um, uh, usually death by a thousand daggers. 
<laughs> what about that. legally, re- real quick? I mean, did you ever come across anything that you were on gray or a squishy legal footing? You didn't use it because you were worried about libel. I never personally did because everything that we used was backed up by public record. One of the reasons that people go through elections is so that the people who are voting will know who it is they're voting for. And if uh, the, the person that you're voting for had a DWI 10 years ago, some people are going to care, some people aren't, but it's, it's a piece of information. If they took uh, lots of money in a previous job from some group that has mixed uh, reaction from the public, that's important for someone to know. Some people are going to care, some people aren't, but uh, the information is, is available. I also think that it's extremely important that we vet these people. These are people in power, and you have to know everything about them. Get out all the information. I'm not talking about going through their trash bins or anything like that. Like, Jeff, you asked about, was there any legal thing? No. These are people who are going to be representing us in positions of leadership, and we need to know everything possibly about them. And I think that, although some people do think it's nefarious, this is you're vetting someone for a job, an extremely important job in our democracy. What about an election where you have an entrenched incumbent who's been there for a long time? No one really knows anything about some of these background things. You've got a candidate who you're working with. How do you go about starting from scratch trying to find this information? I mean, in, in the Dahl versus Hall race, it's kind of fortuitous that the information arrived when it did. How about if you don't even know? What the, what the incumbent or the other candidate might have. You start from scratch. It's a lot of slogging through campaign finance reports, through old articles. I must have looked at a million votes in my career as an opposition researcher. <laughs> um, and you, you have to take all this information and you have to distill it down so it can be used for the campaign. All right, let's dive into a few games designed to get to the heart of what's working when it comes to political communications today. The first game is called Earning Votes. In this game, you actually just need one vote. How many times does it seem to come down to one vote? You know the lawmaker on the fence. There are supporters that you can bring in and show the support. You don't have a lot of money. You don't have a lot of time. But you do have the will. You're going to put some pressure on this one lawmaker. How are you going to earn that lawmaker's vote? Jeff DeBerry, take us up. It's a good question. Uh, obviously, I think it's going to depend largely on the issue uh, and uh, the lawmaker, him or herself. But but I, I think just uh, viscerally, one place my mind goes to is if you're really trying to put pressure on a lawmaker, you're probably going to try to find some opposition within their district. And maybe that's opposition from a sheriff. Maybe that's opposition from a, a count, an elected official, county commissioner. But someone perhaps in the district who has, has clout. I mean, I think that is that is one potential way to do it. Yeah, someone with clout. Also, if you have uh, polling information or something else that tells you that the people in their district, the ones who actually decide whether they keep their jobs or not, are very much interested in this topic. Uh, And then, you know, there's also just the the wheeler-dealer thing. You you vote for this, and we'll get some people to vote for something you care about. Catherine. I'm from the field perspective, there are basically two strategies. You either try to flood them with a lot of people and a lot of contact, or you go for a more heart strike, something that emotionally appeals to the individual. Like the uh, former Republican governor of North Dakota ended up vetoing a bathroom bill very similar to HB2 after he'd said that he didn't think he'd ever met a trans person. Then the ACLU of North Dakota 
found a trans person that he had met at a group home at which he had volunteered, and that made the difference to him, and he ended up vetoing this bill. Matt. you got to go to the people who are influencing the, this particular lawmaker. If it's just one lawmaker, you go to who butters her bread. All right, next game. This one's called News Coverage. I'm going to tee up an event. You're going to tell me how you're going to get eyeballs on this event. In this case, you're advising a group that's holding a press event at the General Assembly in the press room. You've got a few legislators who are going to show up and support you. You've got experts ready to take the mic and a few real people who will be the faces of this cause that your group is representing. Problem is, there are other press events in that room on that day. There's a committee hearing at the same time as your press event. This really happens. This happens all the time. What can you do to entice reporters to cover your press conference and get another shot at getting into the news? Mitch, you spend a lot of time in that press room. What's your thought? I tell you, this is one of the key challenges, and there are multiple challenges, not just the fact that you might have a, a good meeting going on at the same time, but there are also changes from day to day, sometimes from minute to minute, about when important things are happening. It would be fine if you could say, well, every day the co important committees are meeting at 9 a.m., so let's not have our press conference at 9. Let's do it at some other time. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Right. They schedule meetings anytime they really feel like it, and sometimes it's with, with very little notice. Uh, I think your, your hardest uh, thing to do is to find the angle that's going to entice these reporters to come to, to something that they weren't already planning to cover. Having it be led by legislators is probably not the best thing because the reporters can get the legislators at other times. Having someone who's not likely going to be there at any other time other than your press conference might be your best bet and someone that they'll want to talk to. If you've got some sort of national figure or, the, as we've talked about earlier, someone who has a really compelling story. Yeah, the face the, of the, the story, face, right. Who's, who's not a policy wonk or someone who's going to be hanging out at the building anyway, and, and their only access is really going to be at that press conference, that could be an enticement. How about you, Jeff? What are your thoughts on that? How can I get you to cover this story if you've got other places to be? If I've got other places to be, I, you, you've got to... Either sell me on the urgency of it, I mean, why it is I need to be there now, or if it's something where I can double back with you. If you say, hey, I've got this, this fisherman who is a third-generation angler, and he's dealing with this oyster bill, and he's really, he's really trying to advocate for X or Y. And if, I mean, if, if you can drop something in my ear, some more so, I'm like, well, that's interesting. I have no bandwidth to deal with that right now, but if that's interesting, we, we've planted the seed, so to speak. I mean, we've we've started it. Jeff alluded to this, but this is also important. Uh, be flexible about it. You want them to come to the press conference, but they might not be able to make it. If you can make these same people available at other times, you know, I understand you can't be there at 10 a.m. for the press conference. Can I swing them by your office at one o'clock in the afternoon, or is there some when's other a point? Good time. Yeah, when's a good time? Uh, and another thing, just very briefly, about the press conferences, I hope Jeff would agree with me, one of the worst things about legislative press conferences is you schedule something that's going to last 30 to 45 minutes, and you've got 10 different speakers, all of, and you all tell them all, you've got five minutes to speak. No, what you want for a legislative press conference is no more than two or three speakers who will speak for a relatively short amount of time and then make them available afterward for individual interviews. There's so much more flexibility that way. 
don't fake urgency, okay? Don't tell me something. This is so pressing that we need to have a 1030 press conference today. And this, like, if it's not big and if, if there, there really isn't a timely factor of it, don't sell me on that because we're going to sniff that out pretty quickly. And understand, to Mitch's point, that there's a lot of other stuff going on. And it, while this might be the most important cause to you, uh, it perhaps isn't going to be to a lot of the reporters you, you, you talk to, which isn't to say reporters aren't interested in it. It's to say don't take up an hour uh, if it's a 10-minute issue. All right, beautiful. Uh, next game is called Changing Minds. It's a simple game. I'm going to tee up one scenario. You're going to tell me how you go about leading a communications effort around it. Uh, we've all heard of legislative days. For anyone at home who has not, uh, legislative days are a longstanding way for advocates to get their messages in front of lawmakers. A group goes down to the General Assembly together. Often they're wearing the same color shirts. They have a list of lawmakers they want to talk to, and they literally walk the halls trying to meet as many lawmakers as possible. Y'all at this table are going to tell me what the comms efforts surrounding a legislative day look like top to bottom, right? So how do we start it and how do we finish it top to bottom? Why don't you start, Catherine? Basically, you start off by reaching out to your volunteer leaders. You start off by reaching out to the people who have people and who can get those people down to the legislature to let them know that an urgent issue is happening or that they need to be there for X, Y, or Z event, usually a major vote or a major debate. So you start with like an, a Facebook event that can be shared across social media so that people can chime in, so that you have a way of communicating with everyone who pledges to come. You share that across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, if you really want to. And that's and, another good way of yeah. getting bodies there, exactly. right? It's not just the way of exactly. telling people it's going to happen or to get reporters' attention. It's, it's really also a way of getting exactly. bodies there, right? Exactly. That's the entire idea. You need a good turnout of people in order to get the attention of reporters or the attention of the wider media. I even saw where someone tried to smuggle in a megaphone to a legislative day to try and get it into the gallery in a baby carriage. So, yeah, people are willing to try some very uh, interesting tactics. So that's one part, uh, is getting the bodies there. Who wants to pick up on this thread from there? What do you do to get a reporter's attention once the bodies are at the legislature? Anybody want to chime in on this? I'll throw in the pessimistic thing. If it's a legislative day, reporters are going to ignore it because everyone has a legislative day. They bring all their people in. They go to speak to the lawmakers. That part can be effective, I think, in terms of getting reporters to cover it. There are so many of these legislative days that uh, unless there's some hook about a bill that's active right now, it's really hard. Well, let me throw one thing in there. I, I think that there is an opportunity, given that comment, the, the idea that reporters are less likely to cover an effort at a legislative day, there's an opportunity in there for independent groups to essentially create their own report. And then to use that as the grist for fundraising, to, to get more supporters involved. What I mean by that is you can put together a short one-minute proof-of-performance spot about a legislative day that can then go out either on social or over email. You see this in news stations all the time after a big weather event or some huge amount of performance by the station they'll put on a 15 second spot highlighting the very best of reminding viewers why they want to watch that station advocacy groups can largely do the same thing to produce their own news report effectively doesn't make the news but that doesn't mean it's ineffective as far as other potential uh, 
benefits. And That's- I agree with you, John and Catherine. The medium today is video. You get it on video, and you can give that centipede as many legs as possible um, to get it out to your constituency. And so you're still getting some residual benefit from, yes, we went down and did this, beyond just the legislative impact that you might actually have on specific lawmakers, you get some residual benefit from the fact that you've got all these supporters down there in one place of single mind. Yeah, I think the key is just don't think you're going to get sort of normal mainstream media coverage out of a legislative day. But the points that you all made are exactly right, that you definitely can get video, you can put something together, show we were here, we talked to lawmakers, especially if you can get some of the lawmakers who are friendly to your cause on the camera saying, yeah, this is a great thing, keep on pushing for it. That would be helpful. I just wouldn't expect a lot of reporters to pay much attention to it, only because there are so many similar legislative days. You are trying to motivate your own volunteers and motivate your own supporters. And this sort of sustained engagement, in addition to uh, potentially persuading some legislators, also makes sure that your base and your supporters are engaged and active in an ongoing way. So we're going to dive in with our last game called Mad Libs. This is a lightning round designed to root out the best tactics and strategies for communicators and igniters of change. Obviously, we're staying in politics today. So the first question we've got, the best way to get a lawmaker to listen and pay attention to a message. Go to their constituency. It's difficult to pull off, but if you can catch them in an elevator, that always works. I'm going to give the cheap and easy answer. Tell them their party boss, whichever one it is, supports this. I don't give messages to lawmakers. <laughs> well done, Jeff. Wait, wait to back out of that one. The most effective hashtags on Twitter, and I think we can all agree that Twitter is the currency of choice for lawmakers here, but, but if you're going to drop a few hashtags into their lap, uh, what would you use? I mean, the, the big ones are hashtag NCPOL and hashtag NCGA. I mean, those are the two that you see hundreds of times a day. That's what lawmakers are, are tuned into and hip to. I think so. Uh, and, and as a search mechanism, I mean, that's also how they're tracking you know, yes, the reporters and other lawmakers, but anybody can tweet and anybody can use those hashtags. That's in some ways uh, an opportunity to elevate what it, whatever it is your your message, complaint, or 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 cheer is. It's also uh, a great way to stay hip on the news of the legislature if you can search those you're hashtags. A sick, sick person, yes. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Mitch, I would agree with those hashtags and would add it's important to know who is actually looking. I mean, I think a lot of the lawmakers still don't use Twitter or don't pay attention to it, but know what their staff members and their supporters are looking at because uh, those tend to be younger people with more technological savvy about them. So those are the things to pay attention to. Personally, I'm partial to a good barb on occasion. It's not going to be as of as much general utility as those. But something like the hashtag Moscow Mitch got a lot of energy for the Kentucky Democrats. Uh, I mean, that definitely has its place. Next one. The best thing a group can do to get their event or rally or protest into the news. Um, I'd say do a little, little rain dance, little prayer, and hope that nothing else is going on that day. That's uh, wildly ineffective, but maybe <laughs> the best a person can do. How about you, Mitch? Something that's a little different, uh, just a, a bunch of legislators or a bunch of advocates who are hanging out at the General Assembly anyway all the time is not the best thing. We just recently did an event uh, with a client of ours about climate change, and a hurricane came through. Uh, Dorian. Which was good for the messaging, but bad for the event, but I guess. bad for the event yeah. that no one was going to show up. So, I'll give you one serious one. Bring together two people from different parties and tell me why they agree on whatever the, whatever the issue is. Bring together a Republican and a Democrat, whatever it is you're selling me, 
or a conservative and a progressive. They don't have to be lawmakers, but bring, bring together uh, odd bedfellows and tell me why they are united or standing shoulder to shoulder on whatever the issue is. Catherine? I'm beyond just basic attendance. These events with something like uh, 15 to 30 people, these happen all the time. If you can get a few hundred people to an event on like an important issue, then that might be something that's big enough to get noticed. Uh, uh, beyond that, there's also, and it's very hotly debated by activists, but being disruptive and controversial does generate news. The issue is that it can alienate your uh, opposition or alienate the middle ground. So things like uh, disrupting traffic flow has been used before, though not as much recently in North Carolina. Let's wrap up this Mad Libs round with a couple social media questions. The most effective time of day to post on social media to reach lawmakers? When are they looking? That's a good question. Uh, maybe in the midst of a committee meeting that's dragging on. I, I, so, so it's not a specific time of day. It may be what they're doing in their day and being hip to that? I think there's, yeah, some overflow with, with where the ebb and the flow of the legislative calendar that day. I, th I mean, it's a good question. I don't know that there's a hard and fast, oh, every day at 4.30 is the best time. Um, it's not that. I don't think so. But I would welcome some disagreement on this. I, I think that it could be um, during a committee meeting that's plodding along in the morning as people are, you know, getting easing into their day, or potentially during a House or Senate session. I mean, if there's a fierce uh, speech or debate or something going on on the floor, I think that that is a time. I mean, you you stand up if you're up in the gallery, you can look down and see a lot of a lot of blue light um, coming from the floor of the North Carolina House, lesser extent North Carolina Senate, but people are on their devices for sure. So micro target basically. This isn't reach them in the morning to get your point across. This is micro target. Understand who you're trying to get to, what they're doing over the course of a day. That's that's a lot of work, but to your point, you think the elbow grease would pay off. And part of it is monitoring what's already going on on social media, because a lot of what you're going to be doing is responding. All right, well, let's wrap this thing up with anything else. As we do every week, we will ask that very question, which I know that Jeff is familiar with at the end of every interview. Jeff, have you ever ended an interview with something other than, did I forget anything? Is there anything else oh, I can... Oh, the only time I would have done that is if I was uh, time-limited with some busy college football coach or elected official and i was past my five or ten minutes but in terms of th this conversation no I, I i do not have anything else oh you've got to have something else <laughs> what haven't we covered man <laughs> what, what? Uh, all right any, i'm going any, around the table starting somewhere else. else all right go ahead matt when i was thinking about this podcast i was thinking about how different it was 20 years ago when i got into politics how everyone was all about the money and who could raise the most money. It didn't matter where it came from. Nowadays, people want the money, they want the numbers, but they want little donations. And I think it's just such a, a, a an interesting shift of when it was 20 years ago. Uh, so something that touches on what we were talking about earlier and touches on the campaign that the three of us were involved in that I meant to bring up but I think got a little bit lost is that there is a partisan aspect to all of this, and that impacts which race you're talking about. That impacts primary versus general. Uh, something like what came out about Representative Hall, if this had been a red district and Hall was an incumbent Republican, then I don't think having a Democratic challenger would have been as big of a thing. And we saw that it very nearly didn't work with much, much worse allegations in the case of the Alabama Senate race. So I just kind of want to bring that up, that partisan identification in the modern age seems to be more compelling to most people than whatever the scandal in the news cycle is. Mitch? 
my anything else would probably be in this realm especially politics and the, the workings of a legislature got to be flexible you can come up with a plan it's it's probably a good idea to have a really good plan but also know build in the fact that your plan is going to fail at some point and you need to go to plan b you want to go or you want me to yeah, go no no I'm, I'm happy to usually when i say anything else people say no so that was part of the reason <laughs> i said no uh the surprise vote last week uh, i think it further poisons and taints some already really dirty drinking water in downtown Raleigh. So I think that it is just a reminder of what the next at least 15, 16 months are going to be like, but maybe a forecast of what the next four or five years are going to be like. For my anything else, perhaps more important on Jones Street than anything else is knowing your audience. Know who you're pitching, know what's important to them. Motivation is everything in politics. And if you don't focus on who your audience is and what's going to move that audience. You've hobbled yourself from the very beginning. In many ways, the legislature is a monolith and it's easy to get your mind around, but it's also made up of extremely different individuals. And to get anything done, you've got to start by understanding those individuals. It's always good advice. It is critical in political communications. That does it for this edition of Communications Breakdown. Huge thanks to my guest host today, Jeff Tabiri, also panelists Matt Duffy, Catherine Vandergrift, Mitch Kokai, our appreciation to the John Locke Foundation, which is letting us tape in their studio, and a big thanks to my good friend Marcus Urani and his band Rising Tide for producing today's music. You can find full interviews with Jane Pinsky and Greg Meyer on our website. That's campsitestrategies.com. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you like us, rate the show. That helps others who might be interested in sharpening their communication skills find it. Tell your friends, add us on social, let us know what you found most helpful. That's at Campsite SC. You can also use the hashtag communications breakdown. We'll be back in your feed next week. Until then, remember that words matter, so take them seriously. <laughs>